0: The Norfolk Botanical Gardens provides both an educational and entertaining experience and soon the garden will transport visitors to Asia.
1: A real sort of kaleidoscope of amazing things from the Asian continent.
0: The Transportation Security Administration is offering an expedited security screening program and Nathan Soy from TSA joins us to walk us through the application process.
2: And we just have heard a lot of great feedback as to how easy the process is.
0: Mexico's Riviera Nayarit is more than just a pretty beach area. It has many cultural flavors from which to choose.
3: Experience what each little town has to offer. Try all the flavors and eat the one you like the most.
0: Iron Chef Kat Cora is on a mission to end hunger. As part of our Best Of series, we'll share an earlier interview with Kat as she prepared to embark on a disaster relief tour. We'll talk about culture, conservation, philanthropy, And air travel security just ahead on World Footprints Radio with Ian
4: and Tanya Fitzpatrick. Later in the hour, we'll talk to Iron Chef and television personality Kat Cora about her mission to end hunger and offer disaster relief. When a disaster hits... Her Chefs for Humanity Foundation runs to the front line to assist the affected with access to water, food and nutrition. We spoke to Kat a few years ago to learn about her culinary aspirations and her efforts to fight hunger and we'll share this best of interview. Also coming up on World Footprints, we'll get the 411 on the TSA PreCheck Program To learn how we can avoid the aggravating long airport security lines and walk through security screening without having to remove our shoes, belt, or laptop. We'll also get a taste of Mexico's Riviera Nayarit from Richard Zarkin to learn why this beach destination is more than just a pretty face. That's just ahead.
0: But first, the Norfolk Botanical Gardens is an oasis that sits on 155 acres, showcasing 52 themed gardens, including a butterfly garden, rose garden, and other diverse flora. President and CEO Michael Desplaines tells us that visitors will soon experience a bit of Asia. Michael, welcome. you have got a big cultural event called Lantern Asia coming up in March of 2016 at the Botanical Gardens. Tell us what the world can expect to see.
1: Oh, wow. Well, the world is going to see 38 different, unique, larger-than-life-size sculptures, really, created out of steel and faux silk and household materials like glass bottles and china plates and cups and spoons that represent some of the natural as well as the built environment of Asian countries, everything from giant dragons to temples of heaven to a reproduction of the Taj Mahal and the Merlion, which is the symbol of Singapore in their harbor, Mount Fuji, temple of heaven from Burma, just a real sort of kaleidoscope of amazing things from the Asian
0: continent. Now, this Lantern Asia is going to be a a day-and-night exhibit Give us a sense of what the differences will be when one comes during the day versus at night.
1: Great. In fact, you know, we're even, we're even calling Lantern Asia art by day and magic by night. The workmanship in these lanterns is exceptional. For instance, there'll be a three-story temple of heaven that's literally created with Chinese china plates and china cups and china spoons you know that you'd see in a, in a in a typical chinese restaurant so the artistry is amazing we'll have lions that are created out of small glass medicine bottles that are filled with colored water so that the artistry in the daytime is absolutely spectacular for instance the dragon the, the giant silk dragon is as long as six school buses so to see these things in the daytime is pretty spectacular Now, at night, they really become magical because they're lit from within with LED lights. And then some of the structures are lit from the outside where the light is reflected onto the sculpture. So they really are art by day and magic by night.
4: Now, Michael, what inspired Lantern Asia? I mean, this is a very unique festival. What was the inspiration?
1: So we were actually contacted by a company out of uh, China who has put on these shows. It's a very popular art form in China, obviously, but sort of new to the rest of the world. And the company that did ours had successfully put on shows in Amsterdam and in Sydney, and they were preparing to do their first show in the U.S., which is actually open right now in Spokane, Washington. So we were really intrigued in the sense of no one had really done these before. We did find out that the Missouri Botanical Garden in St. Louis had done a similar type show, so they weren't. It wasn't something totally unknown to the botanical garden world. You know, there was some precedent out there. And then we were lucky in that while we were talking to this company, a different company that also does does this type of production was putting a smaller one on down in Tampa, Florida, for the Tampa Zoo. So we were able to fly down there and see theirs. In action, and it was so impressive and so incredible that we said, Yeah, this is, we need to do this here. This is going to be a showstopper.
4: The Norfolk Botanical Garden started during the Great Depression. Tell us the backstory, the genesis of this garden.
1: It's a great story. It was started as a Works Progress Administration grant proposal. They basically, the city said, Hmm, why don't we apply for a WPA grant to get some money? to plant a bunch of azaleas and create a park, if you will, around azaleas. And when they bloom, it might become a tourist attraction or you know, it would bring people and money to the city to come see them. So they were successful. They received about $75,000 from the government at the time. And they hired over 200 unemployed African-American women to clear what was essentially swamps, to plant the first azalea bushes, that would eventually grow and become the Azalea Garden, and what would now become, over 75 years later, the 175-acre Norfolk Botanical Garden.
4: Why azaleas? Good
1: question. I think because they're, they're a plant of the south. We have acid soils here because of our pine, so I think they would do well. You know, there was no major collection of azaleas really anywhere. I, I, it was, you know, at the time. And they were pretty inexpensive plant too. So I think at the time it was a smart it was a really smart choice. Now of course our collection is massive and covers much more than just azaleas. In fact, within our hundred and seventy five acre botanical garden are fifty different themed individual gardens.
0: Now within those themed gardens, how many plant species do you have?
1: Oh God, you had to ask me that question. (laughs) Thousands, I would say. Our taxa is probably I want to say over 2,000 but my horticulture director would know better he's actually away at a conference right now but he would definitely know but certainly way more than the original azalea 75 years ago
0: This is World Footprints Radio. I'm Ian Fitzpatrick. Tanya and I are talking to Michael Desplanes from the Norfolk Botanical Garden and learning what visitors can experience by boat, tram, or foot. We have a link to the botanical gardens on this show page at our website, worldfootprints.com. How many folks does it take to maintain this, this botanical garden?
1: We have about, it fluctuates during the year depending on the season, so obviously we'll hire more folk in the spring and summer when we need additional help. Also, we'll hire more around the holidays we do. We're in our 20th year of doing a a massive holiday exhibit called Garden of Lights, so we'll we'll bring in more people for that, but anywhere from 75 to 100 year-round employees.
4: Well, and speaking of the, the events that you have, the Botanical Garden is a year-round garden, is it not?
1: Correct. In fact, we are open every single day of the year. The two days that we're closed, Thanksgiving and Christmas, we actually are open that night for our holiday display. So technically, we never close.
4: I know the garden has hosted a number of dignitaries over the years. Who has been some of the most or more memorable guests?
1: I'd say our most recent dignitary was the, the keynote speaker for our 75th anniversary was Maya Angelou, which, uh, you know, again, going back to the history of the garden, it was just the perfect selection to have her uh, come and speak. Um, we've had several presidents visit since NATO arrived in the 60s to be headquartered here in Norfolk. We've had quite a few of the generals and commanders of NATO who have had uh, daughters take part in our, what used to be the Azalea Festival, it's now NATO Festival, so Eisenhower, Jimmy Carter swung by when Air Force One was at, next door at the airport and walked over to visit the garden. We, we've had a lot.
4: And speaking of the airport, you're in very close proximity to the airport of Norfolk. Is there a shuttle that goes between the airport for, say, somebody who's on layover who may want to visit the garden?
1: Well, the airport was actually created with land from the garden, and and the city decided to co-locate both facilities here. They're wonderful neighbors to ours. It's one of the most beautiful airports you can land in and out of simply because of the location to us. And there's actually a gate. There's a walkway and a gate that's between the arrivals and departures buildings where you can walk over and enter the garden. It's open seven days a week, and folks either are awaiting a flight or arriving early, can actually walk over and tour the garden instead of sitting at the gate at the airport. It's it's a pretty unique thing. We love it. We think it's a real wonderful and wonderful
5: thing.
4: It sounds like a wonderful uh, sanctuary for somebody who may have a little anxiety about flying <laughs> or just you know want want to get away from city life. I mean, there seems to be a lot of uh, serene places, uh, yeah. including the river that runs through the garden.
1: Well, yeah, we're surrounded on water by three sides with Mirror Lake to our right and Lake Whitehurst to our left, and the entire garden is bisected with a canal system. So we're one of the only public gardens that you can visit on foot. We also have trams that can take you around the garden, and then we also offer boat rides through the garden. So we're, we're unique in that aspect as
0: well. Now, being in a heavily... Military cities such as Norfolk, uh, having a botanical garden may seem out of place to some. How has the military community over the years taken to the garden as as perhaps a place of respite from some of the harder, more difficult jobs that they have?
1: Great question. In 2006, we opened what's called Wow or World of Wonder, a children's garden, which is a three-acre that childrens theme garden that's one of the best, really, in the country. And because so many of our military families here have young children, you know, for the most part, the majority of people who serve in the military are young and they have young families, it has transformed the visitation to our garden starting when that opened in 2006. So we have a lot of young families, a lot of military, who take advantage of the cultural gem that the botanical garden is. So we're, we're very lucky in that aspect.
4: Speaking of, you know, younger families, you know, younger people may think that a botanical garden is for old people. I know I used to think that when I was a teenage creature. And so what are you doing to attract the younger visitors, like teenagers, who think everything is boring, the important millennial market?
1: Sure. Two things. I think, obviously, one, you know, we've introduced a lot of new special events and things that are a little different that to attract a younger audience. Just this past weekend, we had a, a, we hosted twice a year, Aquafire, where we light cauldrons of fire on one of the reflecting ponds. In one of the formal gardens, we have live music. There's food trucks. So we do that to sort of bring in a different a different age group. But I think also just by being 175 acres of nature and beauty lends itself to all of the people who do want to escape the city and want to walk somewhere that's safe, that's clean, where there's no traffic. We do bike. We allow bike riding in the garden. So I, you know, you'd actually be surprised at how many young people we do see in here. They really see us as sort of the park of of Norfolk, as as the safe place to go. We're implementing campus-wide Wi-Fi everywhere. We've brought in a new hipster caterer, if you will, who's really popular in the local food scene down here in Norfolk, which is really incredible. You know, we feature some of the craft breweries when we have our events at night. So uh, we've done a really good job of sort of being a little different to get some different folk in here. Mm
0: -hmm. Now, you've got a number of interesting features there in the garden. One of those is the Treasure Island Project. What's that about?
1: Treasure Island was a long time ago. It was a little island in one of the ponds that in the 60s you could come visit, and there's a replica of a pirate ship. What and that, that doesn't exist. That was a long time ago. What we do have now is, as part of a temporary exhibit a few summers ago that was incredibly popular, is we have a giant sand pile that has pirate flags and ship motif and and different things for kids to climb and play on, and it's huge. I jokingly call it the world's largest pile of sand. We let kids dig there and play and roll around, and even the furniture, you can move it and sort of create your own spaces. So that's sort of become our new sort of the treasure island of the 21st century, if you will.
4: Gotcha. So what are some of the other features and attractions you have in the garden? I mean, on 125 acres, you have to have quite a lot of offerings. I know you have a butterfly garden. We have a
5: great
1: butterfly garden and a butterfly house. That was also a temporary exhibit at one time, but that was so popular that we have now kept it, and it's it's open every summer. We have an incredible native garden that's actually a board, an elevated boardwalk that goes out on a peninsula around some of the water here. We've got an amazing visitor center that houses not only a spectacular reception hall for weddings and events that overlooks our rose garden. We have one of the largest rose gardens on the entire East Coast. It has an entire education wing. We offer classes in cooking and tai chi and art. We've got a fantastic uh, gift shop. And then, as I said, we have over 50 different themed gardens within the large botanical garden, from shade gardens to sculpture gardens, rose garden, NATO Tower. We've actually got a tower that was built in the 60s in honor of NATO mm-hmm. that overlooks the entire garden that you can climb to the top of. So there's certainly plenty to keep you busy here.
4: Now, when you mention rose garden, I always think about weddings. Do you host weddings there? Are people able to hire out spaces for private events? We like do.
1: Weddings, weddings and rentals, as any nonprofit can tell you, has become an important part of our revenue stream. that helps us do a lot of the good work that we do here. And we do have many, many weddings year round here at the garden. We have lots of different venues indoor and out that people can rent. We also have, you know, smaller dinners or luncheons. We have a lot of nonprofit groups, civic leagues, plant societies that hold meetings and events here as well. So it really is in a lot of ways a, a community gathering place.
4: Wonderful. So, Michael, uh, what is your website and your hours of operation?
1: So the website is NorfolkBotanicalGarden.org. We are open seven days a week, year-round. Our hours do adjust seasonally only twice a year, and they can get all of that information on our website, including admission and membership as well.
4: Wonderful. Michael, thank you so much for joining us.
1: It was such a pleasure to be with you.
4: To plan your visit to the Norfolk Botanical Gardens, visit NorfolkBotanicalGarden.org.
0: In this destination quick hit, let's head to Birmingham, Alabama to speak with our good friend, Vicki Ashford. What would be the first chapter of our Birmingham story? Should we visit Birmingham again? The
6: first chapter would be that there are very, very diverse activities in Birmingham. Um, we have a food scene that that just beats everybody else's food scene. We have This is the year of Alabama barbecue, so... We would definitely get into the food scene in Birmingham. It goes from um, the white linen tablecloth down to the mom-and-pop restaurant. So you got all different types of dining in our area. So I would encourage people to come in and take a bite out of Birmingham.
0: Transportation Security Administration, TSA, created a trusted traveler program called TSA PreCheck. This allows for expedited security screening and you don't have to remove your shoes or laptop. As frequent travelers, we appreciate the time the TSA PreCheck has saved us, so we invited Nathan Soy from TSA to explain the application process and address some common misperceptions. Nathan, welcome. Thank you. Give us a sense of what the TSA pre-check program is and how it would benefit travelers.
2: Well, the TSA initiative is really designed to offer uh, expedited screening eligibility to people that TSA has deemed low risk. So back in 2011, this was something set up in various airports around the country to allow certain populations, such as frequent flyers, to go through checkpoint screening, you know, without having to take off their shoes or laptops out of their bags or taking off their light coats. But back in the end of 2013, TSA decided to make this eligible for the general public and offered an application program in order to... To, to make this more broadly available. So, TSA really feels like it is a value to the general public in that it's an $85 fee for five years worth of enrollment, so that works up to $17 a year. And what that enables you to do is really go through checkpoint screening at the airport in a much quicker fashion and an expedited fashion compared to the regular types of screening screening that uh, people may have already experienced at the airport. And we just have heard a lot of great feedback from the general public as to how much more quickly they've gone through as well as how easy the process is.
4: Now, Nathan, uh, for the sake of full disclosure, Ian and I uh, have enrolled in the TSA PreCheck program but i remember when we did apply i don't believe that we were able to utilize the benefit of the tsa precheck at the time uh that we applied so there is a little bit of a waiting period right
2: that's correct so uh maybe now is a good time for me to walk through the enrollment process yes great first of all applicants to the tsa precheck application program must be a us citizen or lawful permanent resident And what you would do is you would bring a proof of identity through a photo ID, as well as proof of your lawful presence. So, for many people, for example, they'll bring a passport, which fulfills both requirements. Or some people may bring, say, a driver's license, as well as a official birth certificate issued by a state or some other kind of jurisdiction. Applicants would have the option of pre-enrolling or submitting some biographic information via our website, which is located at HTTPS, and then it's universalenroll.dhs.gov and they can pre-populate that information and then set up an appointment at a at an enrollment center near them or just walk into a location. And upon arrival at that enrollment center, they'll be able to either verify the information that they used to pre-enroll or submit that information for the first time, and then they'll submit their fingerprints. What TSA requires for the threat assessment for TSA PreCheck is both the biographic information submitted as well as the fingerprints submitted. So it's really critical to finish that step by going to an enrollment center. So once TSA has uh, that information, it's our goal to get some kind of answer or response to an applicant within usually three to four weeks of, of that submission, although we find that for a majority of our applicants, we are able to return a response much sooner. And once somebody is cleared, they'll be able to use a KTN or a known traveler number that we have sent to them via first class mail or they can go back to that enrollment website that I mentioned earlier and there's a a section there called check status where they would enter in the information that they used upon enrollment to access that KTN number if TSA has indeed cleared and finished that threat assessment
4: for them. You're listening to World Footprints Radio with Tanya and Ian Fitzpatrick. We're talking to Nathan Soy from the Transportation Security Administration, and he is giving us the 411 on the TSA PreCheck program.
0: Nathan, you've mentioned known traveler number. I'm curious, does that relate to the Trusted Traveler Program, or is the Trusted Traveler Program a different program versus what we're talking about in terms of TSA pre-check and these uh, known traveler numbers?
2: Well, the TSA application, uh, pre-check application program actually falls under an an umbrella of VHS's or the Department of Homeland Security's Trusted Traveler Program. So there's also Custom and Border Protection's Global Entry Program, Nexus and Sentry And so all three of those other DHS Trusted Traveler programs also offer as an ancillary benefit eligibility in TSA pre check lanes for domestic travel or for travel going from a domestic airport to an international destination.
4: So if someone had the Global Entry or or applied to the Global Entry Program, they wouldn't necessarily have to also apply to the TSA pre-check program?
2: Exactly. So if somebody has already applied for global entry, there's no need to apply for TSA's pre-check application program because they will automatically get that benefit. And really what that CBP Global Entry Pass ID number is on the card that they give you, that is the equivalent of a known traveler number or KTN. So they would just enter in that nine-digit Global Entry number, Nexus, Entry number as their KTN in their airline reservations or frequent flyer profile.
0: Nathan, in our closing moments with you, what are some of the misconceptions that travelers have about the TSA pre-check program that you can clarify?
2: Well, I think one of the things that we have encountered most from the general public in terms of feedback is – really knowing how to use that known traveler number. It's really important for the public to know that the way that they have applied through our program, or really through any program that offers the TSA pre-check eligibility, is to enter in their name on a flight reservation or an airline profile exactly as it is upon their enrollment. So we know that there's a lot of Maybe like if you went, if I went by, uh, if I enrolled under Nathan, but then I usually fly under Nate, I would have to put in Nathan into my flight reservation or airline profile. And that also pertains to the dates of birth as well, as well as gender. So we want to make sure that all of that information is consistent.
5: Mm-hmm. And
2: um, the other thing that we've also come across that would be helpful for applicants to know is that the, the documents, if they're providing more than one enrollment document, names and information on uh, more than one document have to be consistent and equivalent to each other. It's really important if you don't have documents that have matching information to provide some sort of document that links the change or that shows the progression of why one name doesn't match another, such as like a marriage certificate, divorce decree, name change document issued by a court or something like that. So I think those are really kind of like the common pitfalls and um, some of the common problems that we've experienced in the application program.
0: Nathan Soy of the Transportation Security Administration, we thank you for being with us today on World Footprints.
2: Well, thank you very much for having me. It
0: was a pleasure. To learn how to apply for the TSA pre Program, visit TSA.gov or visit this show page on worldfootprints.com for a direct link. You're listening to World Footprints Radio with Ian and Tanya Fitzpatrick. Just ahead, we'll go into our best-of archives to share our interview with Iron Chef and humanitarian Kat Cora to learn about her life and her commitment to ending hunger. But in a moment, we'll travel to Mexico's Riviera Nayarit and visit the coastal area that sits just north of Puerto Vallarta. If you want more travel experiences beyond this radio show, visit our website, WorldFootprints.com.
4: Mexico's Riviera Nayarit provides a backdrop of endless golden beaches, many of which are certified as eco-friendly by the Mexican government. The 200-mile stretch of lush vegetation, emerald green mountains, and animal species also boasts 23 different coastal towns. Having just returned from the neighboring Puerto Vallarta, We had a chance to learn more about Riviera Nayarit with Richard Zarkin at the Travel Media Showcase.
3: My name is Richard Zarkin, PR Manager for the Riviera Nayarit Convention and Visitors Bureau. Riviera Nayarit is located in the Pacific Coast of Mexico, which is in the middle of the country, right starting at Banderas Bay. We are the northern neighbor of Puerto Vallarta, Jalisco, so the main airport of entry is a Puerto Vallarta International Airport. It is a coastline of two hundred miles with twenty three different coastal towns. That is what makes us different than other beach destinations in Mexico. This coastline has like an ice cream store. You go there and have twenty three different flavors to <laughs> choose from. And of course at the Sierra Madre Falls in the state and the Sierra Madre falls into the ocean, making a coastline. As you you would have a lot of little bays, you know, a little little, little cove. So, each town is nestled in a little cove. So it's very nice to if you look up north, you will see how 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 the, the Sierra is falling into the ocean. So we have a lot of flora and fauna. Summertime we have the releasing of the baby turtles. Wintertime we have the humpback whales. We have very good uh, wind for sailing, kiteboarding, windsurfing. We have good surfing year-round, winter in the south. One of our most famous towns is Sayulita, which is a surfing town. We just held the stand-up paddle and paddleboard world championship for the first time in Mexico in Sayulita. Mm -hmm. We have in uh, March a beach polo competition. We have a gourmet golf in Punta Mita. Punta Mita is Mexico's most exclusive destination where the celebrities come. And then we have Blas, which is the second port built by the Spaniards. A very important niche market goes there in the winter. Why the winter? Because we have very pleasant winters. Summer is hot and humid, but bird watching. Only the United States has 44 million bird watchers. San Blas, between Central America, Caribbean and North America, is the most important bird watching area. 80% of the northern migratory birds of North America spend the winter here a very important ecosystem.
4: With the release of the the baby turtles you talked about and the bird watching, is it safe to assume that the purpose for Narete is conservation or that there is a strong conservation mission?
3: Yes, we have seven UNESCO uh, wildlife reserves. Our mangrove area are also a, a, a wildlife reserve and The Mexican federal government started a program of certifying beaches uh, a couple of years ago. There are 31 certified beaches, and Riviera Nayarit has 10 of them, so we are the destination with the biggest certification. We also have a blue flag beach, and we have the first marina in Mexico certified by, by blue flag. And Blue flag certification is the World Tourism Organization. Then there is another organization in Australia called Earth Check. And what they do is they look at uh, destinations, at developments to see that they have sustainability, protection of the environment. And our Nuevo Vallarta area, we submitted it to be an Earth Check uh, certified, and of course the marina. And we do promote because. Not only the tourists uh, want to see a clean and protected destination, we, as the people of Nayari, we want our destination to be clean and protected. And a little over a year ago, in one of our communities, the local people started a beach cleanup every Saturday. One community started, and now we have 13 communities that every Saturday do beach cleanup. And that is good. Why? Because they're promoting the culture of protecting their environment, Mm -hmm. teaching it to the kids, and teaching the tourists that if we have a clean house, we want our tourists to keep it clean. Mm -hmm. So it makes a nice circle, and, and as a tourism board, we promote that, we do press releases, we spread the word around. That is important.
0: This is World Footprints with Ian and Tanya Fitzpatrick, and we're talking to Richard Zarkin from Riviera Nayarit about conservation and the area's history and diverse offerings.
3: It's a state with a lot of history. The city of Aztlan and the pyre of Aztlan was located in this part of the country. Aztlan is from where the seven tribes left in a pilgrimage, the last tribe being the Mexica, or the Aztecs, as you know them better, and they left the island of mexical and they made a 300-year uh, pilgrimage, and then they founded Mexico-Tenochtitlan, and they're Mexicas, because that's why we're called Mexico, but Zamblas, uh, it was a second port built by the Spanish colony in 1768, for two purposes, avoid piratry, because the ships were coming from fort of San Diego and Acapulco, reaching Zamblas, and then going to Manila, and uh, Spanish colony wanted to stop the Russian empire that it was already in Alaska. We have that colonial story, so we have the pre-Hispanic culture, the colonial, the modern, and we have four ethnic important tribes that you can see them in the Sierra Madre, which are the Cora, the Huichol, Tepehuanos, and Mexicaneros. But particularly the Huichol come down to the coastline to work, they do these glass beads and yarn paintings. and We have modern hotels, modern areas, so you can find a very authentic Mexico with modern facilities with a lot of nature that is protected, very well connected through an international airport. Most of our hotel development is south, yet it is a coast that anybody can go. The adventure traveler, we recommend take a car. Drive. It's an easy drive, it's a safe drive. You go north, you go south, and you can stop at each little town you want to visit and experience what each little town has to offer. Try all the flavors and eat the one you like the
5: most.
4: <laughs> as a local, as somebody, grew up there, what do you like to do for downtown? If somebody wanted to travel like a local, how would they travel like you?
3: What do I like to do as a local? I like the quiet, secluded beaches. I like San Francisco very much because it's very calm. But if I want a little more activity, I go to Sayulita because you have the surfers. You have more people there. You have the cool shops. People are scared of of, of the Punta de Mita area because you have this very exclusive gated community. But outside you have a town where you can have paddle boarding, surfer lessons, where you can go to the Marieta Islands. I just love the destination as a whole completely. I love San because of the very pristine beaches, because of the nature you find there, because of you can be by the beach and have typical uh, Nayarit gastronomy, like butterfly open shrimp, which is called pescado zarandeado, with fresh-made tortillas and the fre- fresh-made guachile uh, sauce. So as a traveler versus a tourist, a traveler is more adventurous. The traveler will will read, will want to go where the locals go. Will one, He, she will not want to be taken in a bus to the hotel, stay there, get back on the bus, and that's it. Yeah. Go where the locals go. Eat where they eat.
4: Yes, yeah. <laughs> and now you made me hungry for the food that we enjoyed uh, when we were there. Uh, gracias, Richard, for Mucho spending gracias, time. Muchas gracias a ti.
0: To learn more about Riviera Nayarit and to plan your holiday visit there, visit rivieranayarit.com. We will also have a link to that website on this show page at WorldFootprints.com. This destination, Quick Hit, we will visit Tampa Bay with Dave Reynolds. Dave, if we were to visit the Tampa Bay region, what would be the first chapter in our Tampa Bay story? First chapter would be cool, hip, history, authentic. When you talk about those buzzwords, sometimes people get them confused with some other things, but I think the legitimacy of Tampa is what sells it. Whether it's something new, such as the food and, beer, food and beverage scene or something old like Ybor City where you have history, you have culture, you have uh, an international flavor to things, or whether it's something for families. Tampa has everything that Miami and Orlando does and then more. Kat Cora knew she had culinary aspirations at an early age. When she was 15 years old, she developed a business plan for her own restaurant. Now she has several restaurants, a few television shows, and an Iron Chef title under her belt. Because food is Kat's passion and profession, she has become acutely aware that there are too many places where food is lacking, so she founded Chefs for Humanity. During our earlier interview with Kat, we learned how she inspired the culinary community to unite in the fight against hunger.
4: Kat Cora, welcome to World Footprints.
6: Hi, Tanya. Thanks for having me on. I appreciate it.
4: Oh, it's it's our pleasure. And and you know, Ian and I are foodies, and I love to eat. So it's it's, it's truly a pleasure for me. <laughs> Absolutely.
6: Well, who doesn't? That's great. I'm so glad you guys are
4: foodies. Absolutely. Now, um, just as some background, can you kind of give us the genesis for Chefs for Humanity? I know it began with a food uh, phone call to UNICEF.
6: Right. Well, yes, and, and you know, I was uh I, it was a phone call to Unicef. Um I wanted to reach out like so many people do uh in a time of crisis. This is when the tsunami hit in Asia and um to ask them what I could do to help and they said, you know, look, if you can just, you know, um get out there and let people know, all your contacts, know your chef friends what we're doing, um that would be great. And that's what I did and I just got an overwhelming amount of calls from chefs and culinary personalities who just wanted to know what they could do. Could they go over there? Could they roll up their sleeves? Could they cook for people? And it just rem- it just really made me realize that there was not a specific organization like A Doctors Without Borders for culinary personalities and chefs. And that's why I created, I went about creating right away Chefs for Humanity. Now, so t- that's how we got started.
0: Now, Kat, tell us about some of the chefs you assembled for the first relief effort.
6: Well, we had Ming Tsai, we had Tyler Florence, we had uh, several other personalities that were helping that were, you know, Food Network, they were just, you know, a lot of the personalities anybody could think of at Food Network was really just, you know, supporting us, whether it was by, you know, putting the word out of what what Chester Humanity was doing or financially donating, uh, making phone calls to their contacts but it just kind of grew like wildfire. We had a lot of Food Network personalities coming over and executives from Food Network uh, to help cook. And uh when Katrina happened, uh that was we weren't even a year old. We were really uh, a young organization, but we were there in Mississippi and we were feeding 5,000 people a day. So that was really kind of uh putting us right into the to the frying pan right away. Uh, you know, we mobilized many people and got over there and and did our emergency feeding relief program for like I said,
5: five, six
0: thousand people a day. Now, Kat, you mentioned about the partnerships with the UN, and, and I also know you're, you've done some work with the Mustard Seed Project in uh, Zambia. Talk to us about about some of these partners and some of the travels you've taken.
6: One of our big, our, obviously, our biggest partner right now is the World Food Program, and we definitely we've I've done many fundraisers for uh, you know for hunger. So whether it's Mustard Seed. You know, organization or others. My one of my biggest goals for chefs for humanity is to help be a part of ending world hunger, and that's what we're trying to do—one event at a time, one fundraiser at a time, one dollar at a time. And so we—I participate all year through chefs for humanity and fundraisers for hunger initiatives. Um, whether it's an appearance, whether it's a book signing, whether it's cooking, whatever I can do to help be a part of that, you know, I just want to give back. I feel so blessed in my career, and I really just want to give back on what I can. And I know every, a lot of people out there, a lot of your listeners probably feel that way. So this is my way of giving back and starting Chefs Humanity. And we do, you know, our our, our mission is uh, emergency feeding relief and crisis and hunger initiatives. Mm-hmm. So that's our, our main goal. And, you know, I've worked with Feeding America through Macy's, Share Our Strength. I've done some work with. So, you know, we're not only about global hunger, we're about domestic hunger as well because we definitely need aid here in the U.S. We're a global and domestic organization.
4: And and I know as part of your mission with uh, chefs for humanity, I mean there's an educational component as well. And so you actually, in addition to providing emergency food relief, uh, you also educate. And and you mentioned you know your work domestically. And I know here in this country there there is a, an obesity epidemic, uh, particularly among children. Uh, how involved are you in in that? In, in educating children domestically about nutritional you know the importance of nutritional guidelines
6: well I mean we're very involved in it. We really um, we have a curriculum that we're trying to create through Chefster Humanity called every Kid can and it really is about teaching people you know, children, but not only just children but their parents as well educating because it really is a family affair. Mm-hmm. The parents are you know grocery shopping, cooking the meals, the kids. We're we're teaching both the parents and the children about nutrition, about eating nutritional foods, but also teaching them about how to cook uh, delicious meals that are nutritious. So that's one of our biggest goals as well. You know, that's probably our third-tier goal is really about teaching nutritional education to children and parents throughout the U.S. because we do have an obesity epidemic, and we want to be a part of of that process too, and that project is, is helping Educate people. I've, I've done some uh, shows through Disney World with parents and children and cooking called What's Cooking with Cat Cora. And it was all about teaching parents and their children together. We all cook together as a group and teaching them about how to cook delicious meals that are nutritious and how to shop. And how, you know, I just did a, a show last year with Oprah about how uh, to go into parent, you know, to, I went into a family's home and, and went to the grocery store with the family and cooked with the family a breakfast, a lunch, and a dinner. and really spent time with them, was really immersed in their home to teach them how to eat more nutritionally, but also to eat delicious, wholesome food. So it was a really great show that we did about, it was really geared towards uh, the epidemic of of obesity, but also nutritional eating uh, in families.
4: Well, you know, you're always welcome in the Fitzpatrick household, too.
6: (laughs) (laughs) We may do that. We may drop
4: in on you. <laughs> this is World Footprints Radio with Tanya and Ian Fitzpatrick, and we're sharing one of our best of interviews with culinary rock star, Iron Chef Kat Cora. Tell, tell us about some of the you know, your influences, what it was like to be a mentor of, of the Julia Childs, Good Grief.
6: Yeah, she was, you know, the thing is, I mean, everything you see about Julia was true. I mean, she was just someone who was bigger than life. She was the most gracious person you you could ever meet. She gave back so much to young chefs and, and to young people interested in food. She remembered where she came from and how she started, and, and that never, she never forgot that, which was great about her. And, you know, I was lucky enough to, to spend time in her home in Cambridge when they, she was shooting one of her Master Chef series. So I got the chance to spend the day with her in her home in Cambridge. you know I met her uh, first met her at a book signing that she came to in natchez Mississippi and you know I just had to be there and and she actually took time out from her. I know they had her on a really busy schedule. I can understand that now in my career how when you're when you're on a book tour that you know you're on a tight schedule, but she you know she actually took time forty forty five minutes with me and just answered every question, had me sit down with her anything she could do i mean it yeah, and so I was able to tell her the next time I saw her that, you know, where I'd gone. You know, I had I she had said you really should go to the Culinary Institute of America, it's the Harvard of Culinary Schools and I did, you know, I applied actually the next day. I was able to come back around and say, you know, I'm I'm about to graduate. You told me this is where I should go and now I'm graduating. Yeah. Really, it's just a, the times that I was able to spend time with her and meet her. It was really cool, and I've never forgotten that. And so I always pay it forward to other young chefs, people who need time to to ask questions, no matter what my schedule is like. I answer every question, I sign every single autograph, I take every single picture, and I won't leave until that's done. So I just really believe in that.
5: Hmm.
0: Now, Kat. Uh... How would you describe your style of cooking and some of those influences on your style?
6: Well, I, you know, before I became an Iron Chef, I would say it was very Mediterranean. I still think that. You know, I trained I trained in France. You know, I'm Greek, Greek-American. I spent time in Italy, Spain. I love African food and Moroccan food. So, I mean, I, I think for me, it really, those are some of the flavors that I love more than mm-hmm. more than anything. But I also think since I've become and iron stuff, I've really experimented a lot with different cuisines, and so I would say that a lot of my style now is very global. Uh, a lot of times now, right now, I just open a restaurant, Cuisina at Walt Disney World, Cuisina by Kat Cora, right on the boardwalk in Orlando, the Disney World Resorts, and so a lot of what I do now is, is very focused on Bringing awareness to the restaurants, but I love to cook Asian. I love to cook African cuisines. I mm-hmm. love. I just you know, I love food. So uh, oh. there's really no cuisine that I don't I don't love to to learn about.
4: Mm-hmm. Well, Kat Cora, Iron Chef, author, <laughs> businesswoman, founder of Chefs for Humanity and many other titles. You,
0: you... The list goes on. <laughs> yeah, the
4: list does go on. Thank you so much for joining us today and for all you're doing to give back. We appreciate you joining us. To learn more about Kat Cora's Chefs for Humanities Foundation, visit catcora.com.
0: Since our initial interview, Cat Cora remains the Food Network's first and only female Iron Chef. She has opened a few new restaurants, including Ocean by Cat Cora in Singapore, and her Cat Cora's Kitchens have popped up in several airports around the country, including San Francisco, Salt Lake City, and Houston. She has a restaurant in Disney World, but that has since closed. Cat continues to build on her Chefs for Humanity mission to provide nutritional education and reduce hunger worldwide. Chefs for Humanity has assisted in disasters from Hurricane Katrina, the earthquake in Haiti, and the drought in the Horn of Africa. The foundation also partnered with SHARE on an incentive program that doubled the value of food stamps that were spent on fresh local produce at farmers markets in major U.S. cities. In addition to Chefs for Humanity, Kat has been using her celebrity status to support a variety of charity events. She was the celebrity chef at the Travelers' Championship Women's Day event that benefited the Hole in the Wall gang camp that serves children with serious illnesses. Kat's television career continues to thrive. She co-hosted a show on the Bravo Network called Around the World in 80 Plates, and she has judged several competitions like Top Chef, and the Miss USA pageant. Over the last few years, Kat has written three cookbooks, Classics with a Twist, Cooking from the Hip, and Kat Cora's Kitchen. She also wrote a children's book called A Suitcase Surprise for Mommy that was inspired by the eldest of her four boys who became upset when Kat prepared to leave for a business trip. Kat said that she was trying to figure out how to comfort him and herself because she was having mommy guilt. They came up with a tradition in which Cat would pack one of his toys in her suitcase so that he would know she was thinking of him.
4: I am so glad that we had a chance to feature the Norfolk Botanical Garden and, of course, our other interviews today. But the Norfolk Botanical Garden is one attraction that I really regret not seeing when I was in Norfolk. I thought, well, we've seen a lot of botanical gardens on our travels. They're all beautiful, but when you've seen one, you've seen them all, and I couldn't be more wrong. This garden, and and I should have known based on my impression of Norfolk, Virginia as a city, on my first visit, I was incredibly impressed with, that, with the city, with the offerings, with the cultural attractions, the food. Oh my gosh. So I should have known that the Norfolk Botanical Garden would be something very special. Uh, and I'm very glad that they're actually bringing outside cultures into the city to share with with the world
0: Yeah, especially with this upcoming Lantern Asia event that they're having that should really put a spotlight on Norfolk as a cultural place as an international city yeah. um, and again the thing about Norfolk is that it uh, is shadowed uh, by the other major cities on the East Coast and a lot of people don't really think of it per se they think of some of the neighbors such as Virginia Beach But Norfolk really is the cultural uh, heart of uh, Chesapeake, Virginia, the tidewater region. And But for Norfolk having some of the infrastructure that it has, these events, such as Lantern Asia, would not come to that area. So kudos to Norfolk.
4: Indeed. Speaking of kudos and traveling and international travel, I'm glad that we had a chance to, at least for us as well, clear up some misperceptions about the TSA precheck. We are trusted travelers in that program and, you know, as lawyers who also work on billable hours, we understand the value of time, and having a trusted traveler uh identification has really saved us a lot of time and a lot of aggravation from uh the security uh, uh procedures at at airports.
0: And the important thing for travelers who haven't done it yet is how easy it is to do. It's really just a matter of making an appointment if you're in one of them uh, gateway cities uh, to uh, go through the quick interview, get fingerprinted, and within two weeks you're given a letter that gives you a number that you can then enter into your uh, profiles with the various airlines that participate in the program so that That information is there, and it will allow you to go into a special queue Mm -hmm. at selected airports, meaning you don't have to take off your shoes, take out your laptop, and avoid that aggravation. That's really a big deal in this day and age when travelers are so hurried.
4: And then, you know, we visited uh, Riviera Nayarit, and actually we are in the area. And, you know, another thing that I'm kicking myself about, dear, when we were in Puerto Vallarta, we had a chance to visit uh the Riviera Nayarit region and we chose to visit uh tequila another area in the Jalisco the state of Jalisco Mexico and i'm glad that we did that as well um but i saw the photographs from our colleagues who actually traveled to uh the uh, the beach resort and i'm very impressed that their focus in order to distinguish themselves as a, a beach resort in Mexico Their focus is on conservation And that's very unique Indeed And uh, and I'm really, really happy That we were able to have Cat Cora on our show I love Cat I met her right after we interviewed her She is adorable She's tiny And one of the most charming people uh, that I've met But I could see just by talking to her That she really does have a heart for cooking um, and an even bigger heart for people and I love the the work that she's doing to um, alleviate worldwide hunger and treat and provide nutritional information we love today's show and we're glad everyone uh, was able to join us and as we close we'd like to leave you with a quote from Genghis Khan one of the joys of travel is meeting new people and Genghis Against Khan couldn't have been more right thank you again everybody for joining us we're Ian and Tanya Fitzpatrick and we look forward to sharing our next journey with you on World Footprints Radio
6: World Footprints Radio with Ian and Tanya Fitzpatrick is a production of World Footprints Media, Silver Spring, Maryland the multi-award winning radio show can be heard around the globe on iHeart Radio Stitcher, iTunes and more Visit worldfootprints.com for a complete list. World Footprints Radio is a leading voice in socially responsible travel. At worldfootprints.com, you'll find an archive of past broadcasts, travel news, reviews and information you can use to deepen your travel experience. Listen, learn and live it at
5: worldfootprints.com.